call this our family gathering because we believe that the church is a family. We're the family of God who gathers. And so you may be here thinking that you're in a church when really you're among the church. And so the whole reason that we get together today on Sundays is to celebrate what Jesus has done and be equipped for the work that God has called us to do as His people all week long. And so uh, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. We're glad to, to have you here. We're doing a, a series that, that we're doing basically all summer called Invisible Made Visible. And so what we're talking about throughout the series is how do we get to know God if we've never been able to see Him? If nobody can see Him, how do we know Him? And, and what John says when he writes about Jesus is no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God, that's Jesus, is in closest relationship with the Father, that's God, and has made Him known. And so if you want to know what God is like, if you want to get to know Him, if you want to follow Him or serve Him or have Him be present in your life or in your world, you need to know Jesus. There's no way around that. There's no escaping that. That's how we get to know who God is. And so what we've been doing in this series and what we'll continue to do throughout the whole summer is talk about different aspects of who God is and then how those aspects are really uh, fleshed out in the person and the work of Jesus. And last week... Pete brought a message on the faithfulness of God. How do you know God's faithful? Uh, and be, it's because of Jesus. And so we talked about that last week and uh, heard re- great reports that God was really speaking to, uh, to us as a community through Him. So thanks, Pete, for being obedient to the Spirit to do that. Uh, today, what we're going to do is talk about one of the primary ways that we know that God is faithful, and, and that is a term that is used particularly of Jesus to describe who He is. And it's a term that most of us probably, if we've been around the church for any length of period of time, we, we think we have a grasp on. We think we understand what it means. We think we know it and, and how it applies to our lives. But the question I would ask is, do we really Do we really understand what this term means? Because it has incredible implications for the way that we live our lives as we get to know who Jesus is. And that term is this. It's the Lamb of God. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so even if you think, man, I've I've heard this message. I know what this is all about. I've been around the church. I I would pray that that you would really listen to the Spirit speak to you for two reasons. And the first one is you may not really understand what God may want to say to you in terms of Him being the Lamb for you who takes away your sin. And so God may want to bring about a brand new understanding for you to bring about some new things that would happen in your life because of that. And secondly, He may want to use you to speak to somebody else so that they would understand who God is because Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so as His people, we're being equipped here today so that we would go out and be an accurate representation of who He is and be able to speak to other people about who He is so that they would know and be able to respond to the love of God that's in Christ. And so God may have a plan to use you specifically to do that. And so even if you think, yeah, I know this, then be listening for how can I communicate this so that somebody else might know it. So the first person to use this term, the Lamb of God, as it applies to Jesus particularly, is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And he appears first in John chapter 1. And so we're going to look there in just a second. But it appears on page 736 if you're going to follow along in the Bibles that are kind of around your seat. Um, And John the Baptist had a particular role, and his role was to be a forerunner to tell people about Jesus' arrival in the world. God specifically raised him up to use him, uh, and, and he began his ministry by baptizing people in the Jordan River. 
If you know anything about the story, it's the same river that, that was used when God brought Israel into the promised land. And when they got to the banks of that river, God parted the river in two so that they could pass through on dry ground. And he was doing this, John was, was baptizing people in this river to prepare them for Jesus' arrival. And so he, he's doing this as a sign that God is the one who's going to carry them into everything that he wants for them. And so John is baptizing people because a lot, like a lot of us, like most of us, we, they weren't living the way that they should. And so John was baptizing them into repentance, into a, a new way of living. And, and people who were getting into the water with John were basically saying, I'm, I'm a bit of a mess. I, I need God's help. I don't live the way that I should. If you're going to use a term to describe me, it would probably be the term sinner. Um, I need God's help. I need His intervention. I need something new. And in order to receive the Messiah, I, I need to recognize that I'm in a place where I need help. Um, and so, I know just in, in a room this size, that may be some of you today. You may come through the door saying, I need God's help. I need His intervention. I know I don't live the way that I should, and I need Him to do something different in me if I'm going to live differently. And that's where these people were. And so He's baptizing them to prepare them to be able to receive Jesus. And so we're going to tell a bit of His story before we we move on and how He brings up this term, the Lamb of God. He says this, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask Him who He was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. So he's saying, I'm not the one that's going to come and do this. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, he said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am a voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been questioning him said, why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me, has surpassed me, but he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two disciples, two of his disciples. And when Jesus, or when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Um, So the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You may not know this, but this is one of the most important things that you can say about Jesus. There are a number of things that people say about Jesus, that He was a good teacher, that He was moral, that all these different things. But this is one of the most important things. This is the statement, this this very statement, Jesus is the Lamb of God, is the answer to the ultimate longing of the human race. It satisfies even the deepest desire of our hearts as people. Now, you may ask, what in the world gives me the ability to say that? Um, well, in order to understand how important this statement is, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. Because John's audience would have had this flood of imagery come to their minds when they heard this term used, and particularly about Jesus, they would have understood all of these pictures and stories and images, all would have come to their mind. And we, unless we read them, unless we understand them, we have no access to them. But we do the same thing in life. We, if I were to tell you a term that's particular for our day and age, you would have specific instances to be able to go, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't even have to explain it. 
So if I said to you the word Obama, you have particular you know, images in your mind. You have a, a particular person and a particular office and, and particular you know, policies. And, and you may have in your mind a day of inauguration and all that took place that day. There are stories and images that are rolling around in your mind because of the word that I said. And it would have been the same for people of that day when John used this word, the Lamb of God. So we don't have time to uncover everything uh, that, it's, that was understood by them by this term, the Lamb of God, but I want to give you a few thoughts so that we will have the, the context for what he means and how it applies to our lives. And the, the first thing that we need to understand when John uses the word Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is that it, it means that God clothes us when we can't clothe ourselves. God clothes us when we can't clothe ourselves. That one of the meanings of that word is, is that particular phrase. So the, the first place that we see that we need to look in order to understand that this is occurring is, is at the very beginning. If you remember uh, the story at the, in Genesis 2 and 3, um, God creates humans and He creates a garden for them. Um, and, and He names them Adam and Eve. Well, actually, Adam names Eve. And, and then sets them out in the garden and gives them every good thing. And, and if you remember the story, uh, they could eat of any tree in the garden, right? But there are two trees in the, in the very center of the garden. And he says, he gives them particular instruction over those two trees. Do you remember what he says? He says, there's a tree, the, the, the tree of life, and you can eat of that freely. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I do not want you to eat of the fruit of that tree. And so I want, to pick, I want you to picture this. Every day you wake up in the midst of this garden and you have a choice on your hands. You go to the center of the garden, you see these two trees, and you get to make a decision. Am I going to trust today that God is good and faithful and provides everything that I need and I can continue to eat of the tree of life knowing that He provides every good thing for me and living in continual uh, peace and, and prosperity on for infinity. No death, no shame, nothing. Or am I going to get up today and choose to forsake the tree of life and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, I would prefer to choose for myself rather than getting God, letting God, allowing God to choose for me what is good and right for my life. I mean, that's kind of the choice that all of us have every day when we get up, Right? We get to choose either to trust in God and find life through Him, or we get to get up that day and say, I'm going to choose for myself what's good, and I'm going to follow the path for my own goodness and distrust Him. And that was the choice that Adam and Eve had. And, he said, and God warned them and said, if you do eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it will result in your death. Because you will have rebelled against the giver of life, the one who gave you the tree that sustains you, and you will have eaten of something else to try to replace God in your life with yourself. He said, if you do that, it will lead to your death. And so what happens? The serpent comes along and convinces them that God's a liar, and he deceives them and says that God doesn't have their best interests in mind, and so they eat the fruit. And Eve eats it, and then he gives... She gives it to Adam and he eats it. And then we see the result of their eating and disobeying God in verse 7 of chapter 3 in Genesis. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were what? Naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I don't know if you... How many of you are like outdoor people? Have you ever tried to... You know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> How many of you had to, had to uh, when nature called, um, go in nature and then use nature to clean yourselves? Okay, I'm, all the hands went down except for a couple now. How comfortable is that experience? <laughs> have you ever chosen a fig leaf? <laughs> They're <laughs> not the most comfortable experience. There's probably some chafing going on, right? It, not the greatest thing, but imagine this. You have, a, you have two people 
who, who do not realize what it's like to be ashamed. They've never had to cover themselves before. All their lives they have been naked and unashamed. And now suddenly they feel the need to clothe themselves. I mean, you ever, how many of you have kids that like love to run around naked? Like, there, there's something like, <laughs> how many of you are, no, I won't go there and ask that question. But there, there, there's an innocence there, right? Have you ever seen a, a child do that where they just don't care? They're, they are completely naked and unashamed. But, but what happens as they get older? They start to become ashamed, don't they? They, they feel a need to clothe themselves. They feel the need to cover up their bodies. And, and now you could make the case, yeah, that it's society that's telling them that they need to do this. But this is, it's inherent in all of us. We get to a certain age where we start to realize that people are looking at us and making judgment calls about our bodies. And, and the result is we end up layering and layering and layering on more. And so the reason that we put clothes on, is, and particularly as we age, is because we, we become more and more cognizant, more and more aware of how ashamed we are, how broken we are, Internally, we know that there's something wrong, and so our souls cry out for clothing, particularly as we age. And even those who, who you say, well, yeah, I know, but we have a youth culture, and our youth culture loves to be, you know, like show as much skin as possible. But you talk to even those people, particularly later on in their lives, and what they will often say to you is that they regret deeply for some of their choices. Right, we we there's a, there's a deep understanding that as we get older we cover up because we're becoming more aware of our frailty, more aware of our weakness and our brokenness and our inability to maintain our own bodies. Do you know where that all comes from? It comes from this story. But it's not just age either. See, our bodies hold all kinds of experiences. Um, I, I have a, a neighbor who has psoriasis, and, and he has it pretty bad on his legs. And he will not wear shorts around anyone because he's ashamed of what they might think or say about his skin. And so he covers up. He will not show it to anyone because he feels like he, he could never bear that to another. I have a, a, another neighbor who has some tattoos that indicate that he's hurt some people in his past. And there is deep, deep shame in terms of his, uh, the experience of his own life and the regret that he has over some of the decisions that he made earlier in life leads him to now be very, very selective about who he allows into his life because he believes that the moment you see him, you're making a judgment call on him. And so he will not be around great groups of people because the moment he meets you, he feels the need to explain and to hide and to cover some of, some of the, the tattoos that are on his own face because he goes, these people are going to make a judgment call about me and I can't have that happen. And so let me manage their opinion of, of me. And so I've, I've been praying for him and I, I ask that you would join me in praying for him as well that he would come to a place in his life where he would understand that God does not see him for his skin but actually has paid the price to cover him for his past. And so that he would be able to receive community and not feel ashamed. But he does feel great shame. See, it's not just an age thing. Our bodies bear all kinds of shame. And, and even if it's not external, we know that there's something wrong. And so our default mode in life is to hide. It's to push people away or keep them at bay or slowly allow people in as you gain trust with them so that you can have enough confidence that what you're sharing with them will not be used against you in some way. All of us do this. See, and that's what's happening to Adam and Eve here. They show up and God says, Who told you you were naked? Who told you to be ashamed? And the answer is nobody had to tell them, right? They just knew. They knew something had changed. They knew that their disobedience to God had led to their shame. 
And they knew that they had rebelled against Him, and so they needed to cover themselves to hide from Him. But there's an amazing little nugget here. I don't know if you've ever read this part of the story or realized this before, but God does, He doesn't just leave them in their shame, right? He doesn't just allow them to, to walk away with fig leaves around them. What does He do? Yeah, He covers them. In verse 20, we see God's response and He says, So the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and, Eve, Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. And that's a picture of God's gracious activity in their lives. To, to press in and say, even in your rebellion, I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to come into the midst of it and provide where you're weak. I'm going to provide you something. But here's the question. Where in the world did God get the clothing? I mean, you could make the case God's the creator of everything. He could have just, you know, sat there and, and stitched it together, woven it out of nothing. But what's the likely answer? An animal. In other words, he had to kill something in order to cover them. There needed to be a sacrifice. There needed to be something else had to die in order to cover their shame. Someone else had to pay the price for their rebellion so that God could do what they could not do for themselves. So let me ask this, just as we're talking about covering. In our culture, what are some of the things that we look to to cover our shame? You get to dialogue at certain points of the message, and so I am actually looking for a response. If this is new to you, then... uh, then uh, you can participate along or just listen to other people as they participate. But what are some of the things in our culture that we use to look to cover ourselves? Substance abuse? Okay. Yeah, so we, we, we cover ourselves with, a, with a, a substance so that we don't have to deal with maybe some pain in life or some shame that we have. Yeah. Good. What's that? What's that? Just, yeah, material things, right? We think the more that we acquire... The more that we have, the better we'll feel about ourselves. And so we stockpile great amounts of stuff. Sometimes we stockpile things that we think will give us entertainment. Some people stockpile things that that are are tied to particular memories of the past. And we think, if I just hold on to enough stuff from my past or from the people around my life, particularly if I lose those people, then I won't feel so alone. And so I just stockpile memories of stuff. This is where hoarding comes from, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, we compare ourselves to others, right? And we go, I would never do that. And so I'm okay. What are we doing? We're stitching fig leaves together, right? It gets even bad. Because even if we... Even if we look at somebody else and they're doing something similar in our lives, we go, oh yeah, 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 I know, they're doing something very similar to me, but my motives are much better. Like, I, you know, I'm just good in my heart and they're wicked and evil, and so I'm just going to compare our hearts together and come out more righteous. Yeah. Humor. Yeah. Are you saying something about me, James? <laughs> yeah, I was actually really convicted of that. Um, recently I read an article about sarcasm and what you're actually, like what's going on in your heart as you're being sarcastic. Oftentimes it's a, it's a trigger that you're using to, to push people away. And, and oftentimes people that are sarcastic, and this is true of me, are sarcastic at the moment where somebody's about to cross a barrier into an area where you don't want to reveal something. And so you go, I'm going to be sarcastic. People are going to think I'm funny and quick-witted and they're not going to get to know me at a heart level. Oftentimes we can use humor really to hold people at bay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, yeah, giving. Um, so in a sense we're saying I need, to, I need to be the sacrifice, right? And so fig leaves aren't enough, and so I'll, I'm going to upgrade to something else by the way that I give. And sometimes... We, those people can, can seem like the ones that have the most together because you're like, man, they're, they're, they're giving stuff away and they, they seem really spiritual and, and they seem like they got everything together. Um, but inside, they're just 
yeah, they're stockpiling things so that they're stockpiling good works essentially so that people don't have to get to know them or so that they can deal with their own shame or, or feel like they need to cover, yeah. And there's a number of things that we use. Yeah, one more. Yeah. 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 Yeah, oftentimes it's funny because it's uh depression is is typically a form of um of selfishness, right? I mean, you get into this pattern where you're just completely down on yourself and um and, and you think, well, if I beat myself up more than everybody else, then nobody else can beat me up for it. And so therefore everybody will have to love me and accept me. And it's, yeah, you're just doing the same thing. It's a fig leaf, right? Yeah, I mean, we come up with all kinds of ways to do this. I hope you're hearing some of this. And there may be particular things that you do above others, but we all do it. Um, But here's, here's the thing that you need to know. This is what's true, is that what we see from the story is that God is the only one who can cover your shame. He is the only one. And the reason we know that is because deep down what's motivating all of our shame is the knowledge that we've rebelled against our Creator. And so you can try to hide or minimize that truth, but the, the reality is you can never escape it. It's always going to be there. Because all of us know that we haven't lived up to God's expectations for our lives. Nobody has. And because of that, there's shame and this deep longing in all of us to be covered. So the only one that can cover us then is the the one who we've rebelled against. That's what we see in the story. God comes in the midst. He's the one who's been wronged, right? They've sinned against Him, not against one another. And He comes into the midst of it and gives them a new covering. See, you can't cover your shame because you didn't rebel against you. You rebelled against your Creator. And so the covering has to come from Him. And you have to realize that His covering is enough to actually restore you. Otherwise, you're going to be haunted with shame. And many people are. Here's the thing. I I think the reason that, that people often don't reveal who they are is because they have not trusted in Jesus as the Lamb of God who covers their shame so that they don't have to hide. See, so often we... We cover ourselves over and we, we, we try to keep people at bay so they don't really know who we are because they think if they get to know who I am, then they're going to see my shame and then I'm going to feel more ashamed. And we think, man, this is probably a problem out in the world, but what about the church? It's just as bad in the church, right? Oftentimes we, we come into the midst of the church and we think, in the church, everybody's got it together. Everybody's okay, and so I need to pretend that I'm okay even though I'm not okay so that people will think that I'm okay just as they think that they're okay, and so we're all okay. Okay? You're okay. Good. I'm okay too. Let me ask though, when is the last time when somebody's asked you how you're really doing that you go, I'm kind of a mess right now. See, if you have confidence that Jesus is the Lamb of God for you who covers over your shame, then you can be honest. And here's how you know. Like We do life groups around here where people get together and they talk about life and they help disciple one another. What if the next time you came to your life group and things weren't okay, you'd be like, I'm a wreck right now. Like My marriage, it's not going so well. I don't know the last time that we've like been intimate with one another. And I'm not okay with that. What if you came and said, like, I have a lot of fear because I'm afraid I might lose my job. Rather than just coming and saying, you know, I'm okay. Do you see how those things are related? Oftentimes, you're honest about your life because you don't have confidence that you can be naked and unashamed. Do you know that Jesus is your covering. Do you know that? The Bible says that in Him there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ. And if you do, you'll have the ability to be honest about your life 
and where you need help. Because you're not trusting in people's opinions of you or or the the opinions that they might formulate about you. You're not worried if if people are going to break the confidence of the group and go out and tell somebody else because you're like, I'm probably more messed up than you realize. I'm more messed up than I realize. That's why I need Jesus. That's why we all do. So go ahead and talk about me behind my back. Not that you should. But if you do, I will not place my confidence in you and the opinions that you make about me because I have more confidence in what Jesus has done on my behalf. And so I can be naked and unashamed before you. And I hope that, I mean, just as a pastor, I get to model some of that for you. And, and I hope from what you see for me as a guy who does not have everything together but trusts Jesus as much as I'm able to in all areas of my life. I want that for you too. Because that's what Jesus died to give you when He covers you. Next thing we're going we're gonna to talk about is that God rescues us when we can't rescue ourselves. God covers us when we can't cover ourselves. One of the things I'd love to share with you is that God provides a substitute when we can't provide for ourselves, but we're not going to get to that today. Thirdly, this is that God rescues us when we can't rescue ourselves. Uh, Once Adam and Eve rebel against God, God comes and He starts to form a nation through this man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And he gives them a promise that they're going to be a great nation. And, and so eventually that does happen and God makes a, a, a great nation called Israel from their descendants. That their, their job in the world is to be a blessing to everyone. To, to use their lives as servants of all so that they would know what God is like. And, and so Israel starts to form into a great nation, but they're doing it as slaves of another nation called Egypt. See, Egypt doesn't like that they're becoming this great and powerful nation, and so they decide to enslave them. And, and Israel, as they're getting mistreated, they, they cry out to God for help. And through Moses, God prepares to lead His people out so that they would be His own possession. And so what God does in order to ransom His people out is He starts to send plagues so that Egypt would know that God is a really powerful God. He doesn't want them to mistake that. And so Pharaoh refuses, Pharaoh, who's the leader of Egypt, refuses to let them go. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. This is my last plague, and this is going to do the job. And I didn't want it to come to this, but it's come to this, and I'm willing enough to do this because I want my people back. And so he says, I'm going, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the firstborn son of every family in Egypt because Egypt will not let go of my firstborn son. You know that if you're in Him, you're His firstborn and He will do whatever is necessary to get you out of slavery. And He's done everything necessary to do that. So this was God's judgment on Egypt as a nation. But He says there's a way to escape this judgment. There's a way to be spared. And here it is. It's a, he tells them, what I want you to do is, I want you to take a young, unblemished male lamb and I want you to sacrifice it. And then it gets kind of weird, but there's a reason for it. I want you to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house. And then the, the night when I come to judge this nation and wipe out every firstborn son in the entire nation, those who, who have spread the blood of the lamb on their house, I want you to go into your house and eat the lamb, take shelter under its blood, and celebrate that God's judgment is passing over you without taking the firstborn of your house. So I want you to imagine the picture that night. There is both extreme mourning and wailing happening in Egypt and extreme rejoicing and celebrating at the very same time. Because there are two households in Egypt. There are households who have chose not to take God at His Word. And so there was weeping and mourning for those who didn't put their trust in Him as they watched their firstborn children die. And there are those households that were celebrating and rejoicing that God did exactly what He said and gave mercy to those who trusted in Him. 
See, those households understood that they too deserved what was coming and that God in His mercy provided them a way to escape what they deserved. And because they, they trusted in God's means for life, they received what they did not deserve, which is mercy. See, they knew that God was serious and they put their trust in Him and the provision that He gave. God provided them a way out. They said, I'm taking that way. And those people, once they were spared and, and, and Pharaoh did let Israel go from their nation, God led them out and He commanded that they were to have a yearly feast to remember what He did to rescue them. It's called the Passover. That they did not give, that they did not get what they deserved, but in order to get what they didn't deserve, which was freedom, it required a substitute to die in their place. Do you see the pattern here? See, the, the Bible says that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You may say, well, that sounds strange. Why is that? Well, it's because life is in the blood, and when we rebelled against God, we rebelled against the giver of life. And so life must always be taken in order to atone for rebellion every single time. So what does John say about Jesus when he sees Him coming? What does he call Him? He says, look, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look who's coming. In other words, there is God's sole means to be made right with Him. If, if you're looking for a substitute, that's Him. If you're looking for a way to be reconciled to God, here He is. I mean, imagine what His audience must have been thinking as, as they were hearing John say, this is the One. They're saying, here is a, a covering for my shame. Here is a provision for my weaknesses. Here is a substitute for my guilt. All of this in one person. I mean, you see now why John's disciples, they decide to follow Jesus instead. Did you catch that at the end of the story? They're like, you're a great guy and all. You taught us a bunch of stuff. I'm going with Him. <laughs> you know? What's that? Yeah, He didn't. Yeah. Because He trusted in Jesus too, right? Now you think, okay, well, how is Jesus all of this stuff? Like, how could He be all these things? It's through the cross, right? On the cross, what happens? He who is perfect and unblemished, the Lamb of God, who lived a perfectly submitted life to the Father, never rebelled him against Him. He is outside the walls of the city on a cross, hanging, what? Naked and ashamed. He's utterly naked, completely ashamed, so that those who would trust in Him could be naked and unashamed, just like they were in the garden before the rebellion happened. He becomes for us our substitute offering. He is the, the offering before God on our behalf. And He becomes the Lamb who is slain so that all who take shelter in Him won't perish. I mean, what gets held up at, uh, at football games? What verse do you see all the time, right? Which says what? Love the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever trusts in Him, whoever puts their faith in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you hear it? Taking shelter underneath the blood of the Lamb so that they would be spared and have new life. So let me be clear about this because oftentimes what gets peddled as Christianity is like, just try to be a good person and believe in God and like throw up a few prayers every once in a while and God and you, you'll be pretty good. Right? And oftentimes that's what, gets, what Christianity gets reduced to. I want to be clear so that you understand this. The way that you become a Christian is not by believing that a God exists and throwing up prayers every once in a while. The, the way that you become a Christian is by trusting that Jesus is the Lamb of God in your place for your sins. 
and you bank your whole life on this Lamb who takes away your sins and makes you whole again to forgive and cleanse you of your rebellion against God. That's what it means to come to Him. And because He's the Lamb, you believe that everything He says is good and true and you build your life upon it. So when He says, follow Me, you say, I'm in, right? If you believe this, when we're... When we're talking about Jesus as the Lamb, I hope that as we're, as we're saying this, you're going, yes, this is true. Like, tell me more of this. Remind me of who He is because I need this knowledge in my life. I need to know Him better. I need to understand this so that I can be reminded that it's not up to me and that I don't have shame and that I can be free of guilt. But if you're thinking to yourself, you know, I, know, I already know this. Can we like, can we move on to something else? Can we like can we get to something better? Can we move on to like the two point like the two oh one here? And not just stay in the one oh one? This is the baby pool and I want to get to deeper stuff. Now you may not realize what you have when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You may not realize it. If that's you, I want you to I want to call you to behold him, to 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 see him anew, to place your your faith in him. Because when you do, the writer of Hebrews says that one of the most wonderful things that you could ever have occur to you happens. You may not realize that if you're in Christ that this has happened to you. And if you're not in Christ, you may not realize that this is on the offering table. And so I want you to understand. What's, what's actually being offered to you when Jesus says, Behold, I am your Lamb of God. Will you take shelter under Me? In Hebrews 10, the, the writer says, says this. and it's, I want you to understand the implications of this because it's tremendous. He says, Day after day, every priest, talking about Israel, stands and performs his religious duties. Every day, morning and night, Somebody had to go into a temple and sacrifice an animal so that we wouldn't die. Morning and night, every single day, twice a day, for infinity. As, as a way to say, something needs to die in order for people to live, and so God required that a sacrifice was given over and over and over and over again. Just so that we could take our next breath that's how serious our sin is, folks. I hope you realize that. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which he mentions, by the way, can never take away sins. All it does is like a placeholder in a book, but it can't do anything to actually cleanse us. All it does is keep us from dying. But, when this priest, who's he talking about? Jesus. Had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God by one sacrifice. He is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. Do you realize that if you're in Him, you're perfect? Like there is no spot or blemish on you because Jesus, who was the perfect Lamb, transferred all of His perfection onto you so that you can stand naked and unashamed and go, I, I know I'm messed up, but in Jesus, I am whole. I'm righteous. It doesn't matter what anybody says about me. It, it doesn't matter what my boss thinks of me or if my spouse leaves me or if I lose my job or, or what happens to me. I, I am okay. I'm better than okay. I'm perfect. One sacrifice He made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And He says, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Do you know that if you're in Christ, you don't need to beat yourself up for things that you've done in the past? How often have you laid in bed at night and thought, man, I wish I did not do that? How often have you recounted your own day and gone, 
I can't sleep because I just keep replaying this over and over and again in my mind and I wish I had reacted differently. I wish I had done different things or said different things. Do you remember? Do you know that God doesn't remember those things if you're in Him? So you don't need to beat yourself up about it either. And where there, and then He says, and where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Do you know what's true? You no longer need to make sacrifices in order to atone for yourself. Folks, that should be the best news you have ever heard in your entire life. You don't need to walk out those doors and go, okay, it's up to me now. All right, let's make things happen. Who do I need to impress? Where do I need to go? What do I need to do? None of that. You get to walk out those doors and go, I am completely free because one sacrifice was made for me at one point in time and I am forever holy. Because of that. Is that good news to you today? I hope it is. I mean, we should be thinking to ourselves, I can't believe that this is true. I can't believe that I get to live this life. But you'll only get to live it when you realize that His sacrifice is worth more than any sacrifice that you've ever made for yourself. And so I want to ask you today, and I, I want you to really consider this, even as we respond to God and come to His table, whose sacrifice am I trusting in more for my own life? Who, who needs to say you're okay in order for you to be okay? Do you need to measure up? Do you need to like, be as good as your dad and leave a legacy in order to feel like you're a success in life? Do you need to be a good parent? and feel like your kids turned out okay in order for you to, 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 to feel like you've made it? Do you need to get a successful job and make a certain income? Do you feel like you need to give enough? And if you, if you just give away enough of your income, then you'll be holy? Or do you trust in Jesus as the sacrifice for you so that you could be free? See, in Him you're covered. In Him you're provided for. In Him you're rescued. I realize you may be sitting here saying to yourself, but I don't feel like any of those things. Well, that's the whole reason why we're here today, right? It's to be reminded of what's true in Jesus and what He's done on our behalf, and it's to call all of us to believe this again, not just with our minds, but with our hearts. Because when we believe with our hearts, it manifests itself in our hands. And I I want you to live lives that, that... when you look at the fruit of what's going on, you'd be able to say, that tree is rooted in the Gospel. They understand Jesus is the Lamb of God. They don't just say it with their mouths. They don't just believe it because they prayed a prayer when they were 12. They, they demonstrate that they understand that they're taking shelter in the blood of the Lamb because they're new. And they're being made new each and every day. That's what I want for you. This is amazing news. And we need to be reminded of it often. So here's what I'd like you to do as we close. We're going to open up the table. And um, when Jesus, before before He was crucified, the night before He died, He gave a, a, a reminder for all of us. And He said, I want you to take this bread and eat it because this is My body which was broken for you. And so you don't need to be broken anymore. And so if you, if you feel this morning like you're weak, like there are things that are standing against you this week and you have no way to know if you're going to overcome them or not, I want you to come this morning and eat of the body, which is in the in form of bread. It's not actually His body, but we remember Him through it. And say, in Him, I'm strong. I'm weak, but He is strong. And I'm in Him, therefore I am strong. And if you felt shame, if you feel like there are things that I've done or have been done to me and I don't know if I can forgive them or overcome them, I want you to come this morning and realize that what Jesus said, this is My blood, the blood of the New Covenant. Take it and remember that, you're, that in Me you are forgiven. 
That's what it means to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And that's the whole reason why we celebrate that in this form each and every single week. Because the only hope that all of us have to leave this place and actually see our lives change is Him. You think, I know, but it turns into a ritual. I mean, we just have it here every week. I know. Because it's a visual demonstration that our only hope is Him. And so if you feel shame, bring it. Bring it to the table. If you've been trying to be your own provider, lay it down. If you've been trying to sacrifice your way into feeling better about yourself, come to the table and exchange it for the perfect Lamb given for you. It's my encouragement to you is to take refuge in Him. Does that sound like a good plan? And then we get to sing about Him. That's like even better. I hope some of you are going like, let's just get through this stuff so we can just sing, right? I hope that's where you're at because we should want to sing to Him. We should want to cry out with everything that's within us, thank You, God, that You're the Lamb. Thank You that You cover me. Because He is that. So let's come to Him. Father, thank You that You're the Lamb who was slain on our behalf Thank You that we don't need to rely on our own fig leaves to cover us, but we can rely on the the body of the Lamb that was broken for us and the blood shed to forgive us. Thank You that You provide for us when we can't provide for ourselves. Thank You that You cover us and, and rescue us when we can't rescue ourselves. Help us to have confidence in You and not in us. And thank You that He who gave His life for us then rose again and now stands before the Father all day and night saying, God, don't give them what they deserve. Give them what I deserve. Thank You that we have one in heaven who is continually speaking on our behalf to bless us and to change us. Thank You that You've done the work through Your Son. And so we trust in Him. Amen.